This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'm supposed to introduce the last session of the uh, afternoon, which is uh, what to do. So I'm going to make it very simple for you. Don't eat, don't drink, don't bathe, don't breathe, and don't birth. Done. I'm going to tell you a quick story before I introduce uh, our uh, last two speakers of the uh, uh, afternoon. It was about 1993. I was uh, an assistant professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of Wisconsin, and a four-year-old was brought to me with premature breast development. Now, that's a bad age for premature breast development because it usually means like a brain tumor. It's a little too early for an ovarian cyst, and nothing else made sense. And we worked her up completely, and everything was negative. In fact, she was not in puberty. She just had premature breast development. The question is, okay, where's the breast development coming from? And it turned out when we did her urine tox screen, we found plant, uh, very high levels of plant estrogens. Genestein, okay? And I said to the mom, um, you know, are, what does she, like, use at home? And it turned out every night she gets a bath in Victoria's Secret bath gel. And it says right on it, for adults only. So, you know... I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, you know, we got all this breast cancer in this world, and, you know, we don't have any answer. Almost assuredly, there's some exposure. The fact of the matter is, it doesn't take much to grow a fat cell. All it takes is estrogen, glucocorticoid, and insulin. And then there's one more transcription factor called PPR gamma, which certain of the chemicals in our society um, activate. So estrogen, the estrogen receptor is extraordinarily promiscuous. It only takes two hydroxyl groups, 22 angstroms apart, and you're an estrogen. Okay? And virtually every compound that's been talked about today is an estrogen, whether it's BPA, whether it's PBDE, whether it's genistein, whether it's uh, uh, DDT. That's why DDT worked. The fact of the matter is, we're all exposed to these. Now, there are some chemicals that we've been able to get rid of. Almost always, if we've been able to get rid of a chemical, it's because it caused cancer. And the reason is because of the Delaney Amendment. Because only, that was 1964, Delaney was a, a con congressman from Baltimore, introduced the Delaney Amendment that said that anything that we use that the Food and Drug Administration would normally sanction that shows that it causes cancer has to be removed. That's where, what happened to cyclamates, for instance. The Delaney Amendment. Well, the fact of the matter is, these things may cause cancer, but they're endocrine disruptors. They act on the endocrine system to activate something in a hormonal fashion. In other words, they hijack a hormone pathway, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're cancer-causing, which means that they're unbelievably hard to get rid of. And, as everybody in the previous panel said, you know, when there are stakeholders involved, forget about it. 
Okay? The very first, the very first toxic exposure documentation was 1892. And it was lead. How long did it take before lead was finally gotten rid of? 1982. 90 years. 90 years. Okay? In 1962, we had Silent Spring, Rachel Carson, who birthed the modern environmental movement. Okay? Any of those pesticides gone? Just DDT. Rest of them, still around. So this is an extraordinarily difficult problem. It's particularly a problem for metabolic health, for obesity, which I study, and for our next speaker, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who is one of the world's foremost leading dementia specialists, has you know, spent his entire career researching the question of Alzheimer's disease. Now, I will tell you, there are a lot of people who do not necessarily think Dr. Bredesen has gotten it right. I'm going to tell you that. I happen to think he has gotten it right. And I'll explain to you why there is this polarization. He's identified 36, count them, 36 separate things that contribute to Alzheimer's disease. And they're all endocrine disruptors. Duh. Well, they're all out there. So, like, how do you get rid of one? There's still 35 to go. So what he has developed is a pathway, which he will tell us about, called Recode, where you get rid of all 36. But that means basically virtually changing your entire personal environment. And he's the only person who's actually got data on reversal of Alzheimer's symptoms. Now, this has to be done mechanistically. This has to be done in a double-blind, randomized, controlled fashion. We have to figure out who's got which of the 36 problems. But as he states in his book, The End of Alzheimer's, you know, if you've got 36 holes in your roof, patching one of them ain't going to make a whole lot of difference. And that's about right. Every single one of these things is basically uh, continues to be a problem, continues to be prevalent in our society, and is the reason why dementia is now estimated as of yesterday to double between now and the year 2060. Because we are not going to do anything about these 36. So with that, I want to let Dr. Bredesen have the floor. I don't want to steal his thunder. I want you to understand where the criticism comes from so that you can understand the concepts and think about this appropriately. Dale. All right, let me just ask, how many people here want to avoid Alzheimer's disease? <laughs> yeah, mo most of the people here. That's good. Um, and then let me ask here, how many people know they're fasting insulin? Okay, several people, great. How many people know their urinary mycotoxins? Okay, do you know if you're secreting or if you're excreting uh, trichothecenes right now or ochratoxin A? All right. Um, and how many people know their APOE status? Um, so, yeah, maybe 10%, something like that. So, how many people know their cholesterol? 
Yeah, so most people know their cholesterol, and we all know, hey, this is, even though it's turned out that's not such an important thing to know, but we were told at least lipid profile, important to know. So the point here is we all want to know the things, the very 36 things that Robert referred to. We want to know these things because, in fact, it's what's going to tell us whether we are at high risk for dementia. And, in fact, for the first time, we can prevent and, as you heard, reverse, especially early on. And, we're, and I'll show you some examples today. We're seeing unprecedented improvements. We're just publishing another 100 patients that have documented improvement. So we're beginning to understand what this disease is actually all about. And it's important to know your exposome. And it's important to know whether you are exposed to dementogens. We all hear about carcinogens and obesogens. But we need to know, in fact, whether we're exposed to dementogens. So these are critical things. So this is a multi-trillion dollar global problem. And as Robert just alluded to, what's happening right now is that we are dying of 21st century illnesses, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, obesity-related diseases, uh, you know, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, because we are still practicing 20th century medicine. We're looking for monoetiological, monotherapeutic approaches when we need algorithmic, computationally-based approaches. It's a completely different world. Now, I don't know how many people are familiar with the Ansari X Prize. So you've probably heard about the X Prize, and of course, that's, of course, uh, that what got us commercial space flight. And in fact, when this was first proposed, yeah, it was actually illegal to send someone into space if you weren't a country. So there was no such thing. It was illegal to have commercial space flight. So the Ansari X Prize said, look, for whoever can send up a person twice in one week, which is heading toward commercialization of spaceflight, we will give a multi-million dollar prize. And of course, interestingly, if you look back on it, one of the original requirements was it had to go up 100 miles. They realized after a while nobody could do that. So they surreptitiously changed it to 100 kilometers. And if you look at it now, it was given for 100 kilometers twice in a week. Now, what was interesting is nobody had the technology to do that at the time. And so the engineer for the Ansari X Prize said something very interesting. He said, we realized that because nothing was available to do this in the standard approaches, we recognized that whatever was going to be the winning entry was going to sound crazy when it first came up. And on the other hand, anything that sounded, yeah, that's reasonable, was not going to work. So they had to flip the script here. And indeed, what he suggested, which turned out to be the winning entry, was that they build a spacecraft which changes shape as it flies. It sounded crazy, but it's what actually won the prize. And we're in a similar situation now with medicine. We've got to change the way we think about medicine. It may sound crazy what we're doing initially. As he said, as Robert said, you know, we got to, got to do all these different things. Maybe we have to not breathe and not birth, all these other things. But we've got to change the way we think about this. So if you look at neurodegenerative disease, it is arguably the area of greatest therapeutic failure. As everybody says, everyone knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So let me show you some of the first ones today. But one thing is, we treat this without knowing the cause. The greatest, uh, the greatest memory and aging center in the world is right here at UCSF. When you go into any center like this and you say, I have cognitive decline or I have memory problems, the doctor tells you, oh, you have Alzheimer's disease. Well, why did I get Alzheimer's disease? Well, we don't know. It's Alzheimer's disease. That's what it is. So this is like taking your car in to a mechanic 
and you, the mechanic says to you, oh, I know what you've got. This is car not working syndrome. And you say, well, aren't you going to check some things on my car? Well, no, those things aren't reimbursed. And in fact, most of the tests that we actually need to understand why we have cognitive decline are not reimbursed. You want to know your C4A and your TGF beta 1 and your urinary excretion of iodine and your fasting insulin and on and on and on, the very things that are not going to be reimbursed. So we want to understand, and in fact, what we're doing now is we're testing with billions of dollars all these different new drugs without knowing what's actually the cause of Alzheimer's disease. The second thing is we search for the cause as if we think that there's one. Maybe there isn't one. Who told you there's one? Maybe we don't know that. Then we have this idea that we want the drug, the cure. It's a monotherapeutic approach. Great for an antibiotic, and even, even with HIV, something much simpler than Alzheimer's. Of course, it took David Ho, classmate of mine at Caltech, three drugs to make a big effect on HIV. Then we say, we're going to treat it with a uniform therapy. We're going to give you one thing on day one and just keep doing the same thing. Well, maybe that's not the best way to go. Single phase therapy. We're not going to change. We're not going to keep tweaking. We're not going to keep optimizing. Well, why, why do we think that's the best way to go? And then we're going to use just a drug. Why do we think maybe there are lots of other things? Certainly you're in cardiovascular disease. If you go into your cardiologist and he says to her, he or she says to you, you know, cut out the fries, but go ahead and keep the cheeseburgers and the, and the muffins and things like that. You say, what kind of a lousy cardiologist are you? Well, that's exactly what we're doing in neurology. We're saying, here, take this Aricept, okay, and then we'll see if that works for you. Well, we know it doesn't. And then we do these large, expensive clinical trials. And interestingly, the outcome is that we try to slow the decline. As one man said to me whose wife was suffering from Alzheimer's, he said, that's the last thing you'd want if you're living with this every day. We want it actually, we want the first derivative to be positive, right? We want you to improve. So when we actually met about the upcoming Alzheimer's X Prize, this was a couple of years ago now, um, we went around the room and said, okay, what, what would be the goal here? And of course, my argument was the first thing that actually shows an uptick instead of down. And immediately the whole group said, no, that's impossible. We're just going to try to slow the decline. Well, no. In fact, look what's happened with type 2 diabetes. In fact, things that were never before thought possible are happening with appropriate programs. And then targeting the mediators. We, we want to get rid of the amyloid or the tau. Well, those are mediators. Those aren't the causes. We want to know why you're making the amyloid, why you're making the tau. So our research over the last 30 years has been what is actually the fundamental nature of this problem? Why does it happen? We want to know the root cause. And then interestingly, there's a floor effect, right? So you, you know, the, nobody gets better. So you use a drug. Maybe the drug is actually having a modest effect but you can't tell because you're not in the dynamic range. So once we can get you into a dynamic range, we can actually see what's helping and what's not helping. And so I don't know how many people saw The King in the Car Park. It's a great little documentary, and it's about Richard III. And of course, Shakespeare told us that Richard III was horribly deformed, even though, by the way, he was said to be a great warrior. So people would actually become professors because they would say, they would opine you know, my argument is that Richard III was actually no, not so deformed. He didn't have such terrible kyphoscoliosis as Shakespeare. And people would actually get tenure writing this because nobody had any data. Well, guess what? Finally, they identified where Richard III was actually buried and it had been turned into a parking lot. And when they dug him up, he was horribly 
kyphoscoliotic. So in fact, there, what you, didn't have to, you didn't have to know anything to become famous for being a scholar on Richard III. And we had the same situation in Alzheimer's. You can become famous as an Alzheimer's scholar without any making anyone better. Because you just say, I think it's this. Well, okay, you can spend your whole career on reactive oxygen species without really knowing what's going on. So I think we're all going to look back at this time and we're going to say there is a historical lack of insight. We need to change the thought about what 21st century disease is all about. So let's start here. Here's the current standard. This is one cause, we don't know what it is. It's one disease, we don't know much about it. And it's one treatment, and it's a monotherapy, Aricept or Namenda, and it's not very helpful. Well, the research says something very different. As Robert said, 36 contributors. And we'll talk a little bit about these, and certainly exposome, very important here. There are multiple subtypes, as we'll talk about. And there are actually many things that are part of treatment. And this is personalized. Why would I treat this person with Alzheimer's different than that person with Alzheimer's when they actually have different contributors? And by the way, I should add, as Maria Shriver has reminded us repeatedly, this is a woman-centric disease. Nearly two-thirds of Alzheimer's patients are female. And in fact, your chance today of getting Alzheimer's is actually greater if you're a woman than it is of getting breast cancer during your entire lifetime. So we really need a paradigm shift. We need a different way to think about this problem, a major problem, and actually reported from UCSF, now the third leading cause of death by Christine Yaffe and her colleagues. So I just want to show you a couple examples here. This is a very typical story. 70-year-old man, uh, accelerating memory loss, APOE4 positive. If you have zero copies of APOE4, you have about a 9% risk during your lifetime. If you have a single copy, it's about 30%. If you have two copies, it's over 50%. Most likely, you will get Alzheimer's disease. This guy you know, started having problems. He actually worked in the healthcare industry and went and got a, an FDG PET scan, very typical for Alzheimer's. So he's got the gene, he's got the scan, he's got the problem. And he actually followed his own decline, uh, 2003, 2007. And in 2013, he was doing very poorly. And the neuropsychologist told him, look, nobody gets better from this. You need to uh, close up shop. You're going to be in a nursing home at some point. CVLT, his California Verbal Learning Test, had declined from 84th percentile to 3rd percentile, unable to remember, lock combination, et cetera, et cetera. Difficulty at work. One of the interesting things about this guy was that he could actually, as an adult, add columns of numbers. So he would meet with his accountants and say, oh, yeah, that's about 430,000 or so. They go, wow, that was very quick. He lost that with his Alzheimer's. He got it back on his treatment. And he's still, by the way, doing very, very well. Started the end of 2013, so he's almost five years into this now. Interestingly, most of these people take three to six months to start to show improvement, and he, he was no different. But interestingly, his wife called me, and she said, you know, you're missing the most important thing. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, yeah, he's gotten better. She said, but he was actually accelerating in his decline before that, which is common with people with Alzheimer's disease. They kind of fall off the cliff at some point. And she said that completely stopped on the programmatic protocol that I'll talk about, um, and be, then he started showing improvement. Uh, let me just show you the important part here, um, which is his California verbal learning test and his neuropsych test. Now, it's interesting. After he was on treatment for two years, he back at work, doing great. He was actually, instead of closing down his offices, he actually opened a third one. Um, and so I asked him, look, you need to go back, please, and get, get the neuropsychology uh, done again, because we need to see where you stand. And he said, look, I know I'm better. 
He said, my spouse knows I'm better, my coworkers know I'm better. The last thing I want to do is have the neuropsychologist, who was actually kind of pessimistic from the beginning, tell me that I'm not doing as well as everybody else knows I'm doing. So we finally talked him into it. He said, look, this could help other people. So my wife and I were actually driving up. We were driving up from UCLA. We go back and forth between UCLA and the Bay Area. So we were driving up, and I got this call on my cell phone, and the guy said, you have to come see this. He said, I've been practicing neuropsychology for 30 years. I've never seen anything like this before. So here's a guy who's gone, you can see here, from 3rd percentile to 84th percentile on Part B here. You can see his auditory delayed memory, 13th percentile to 79th percentile. And the most important thing of all here is that he's sustained his improvement. And when people go off the program, they get worse, they get back on, they get better. Uh, he has sustained it now from December of 2013, so he's almost five years into this now. And interestingly, uh, he has continued improvement despite the fact that, as you know, when you go on a drug, you may get a bump, but then what happens? You go right back to declining once again. So let me show you one other guy here, also uh, APOE4 positive. This is a family history positive, both parents. This guy, actually a brilliant guy, went to a major university when he was 15 years old. He was always the smartest guy in the room. He's a healthcare professional. Uh, called me when I was at UCLA um, and said, if you guys ever come up with anything that looks good with your drug trials, would you please let me know because I've just been diagnosed. Um, very strongly positive, amyloid pet uh, positive, FDG pet positive, um, you know, all the, ticked all the boxes there. And I said to him, look, well, we don't have a drug for you, but we actually, this is before we published the first paper on improvements, you know, we've got a, a program that actually looks pretty interesting, and why don't you come by? And so, interestingly, this guy, very smart guy, and so everything I would say to him about these different things, including endocrine disruptors, all these things, he'd say, that's not a cure for Alzheimer's. I say, no, that's not. I said, but the way this works is it's like an orchestra. You can't ask what's the one, or what's the one thing that makes, this is an upside down thing that says three minutes. Okay, <laughs> thank you, all right. Uh, homocysteine was high, all right. This guy, vitamin D was low. He, all the things that change the balance that we discovered in 30 years in the lab research to change the balance. So there is a synaptoblastic to synaptoclastic ratio. No different than why you get osteoporosis, changing your signaling from osteoblast and osteoclast. No different. This guy responded beautifully, um, and you can see here his, his hippocampal volume went from 17th percentile to 75th percentile, which the neuroradiologist would not believe. We had to get it, take it to another uh, site to, to get this read. Um, his gray matter volume, this is the same patient, went up by 23%. So, so just dramatic, dramatic improvements. Okay, so this is more than one disease. And if you look at this with the appropriate tests, you get a metabolic profiling. And what you find is that if there's an inflammatory uh, disease, we call Alzheimer's. It's one way to change the signaling. What we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response. You're making the amyloid because it's antimicrobial and because it binds toxins. And it is part of a downsizing if you are suboptimal on your endocrine and horm you know, on your hormonal and your trophic support for your brain. So it is a downsizing program. So there's an atrophic kind. There's a glycotoxic. You want to go and give yourself Alzheimer's disease, start eating plenty of sugar. There is a toxic. They're vile. And that's what I was going to mention a little bit about today. So type 3, we, we realized when we, when we treated the first people, there was a group that wouldn't get better. And it turned out that these were the people who'd had 
toxic exposures. And so this is a field unto itself. And I would argue this is a hidden epidemic. It is hidden under the umbrella of Alzheimer's. These are 50, 51, 52-year-old, typically women, who are told they have Alzheimer's. Why do we have Alzheimer's? This is something I did not see when I trained here at UCSF as a neurology resident. We estimate that there are over 500,000 Americans who have this problem. Where did it come from? And these people all turn out to have metallotoxins and or biotoxins and or organic toxins. And so you need to look for these. And by the way, it does include things like DDT and DDE. Um, one, of the, one of the cases we saw, by the way, from a woman who was exposed to the World Trade Center cloud. If you are a first responder at the World Trade Center and you're in your 50s now, you're, you are at the 13% likelihood of having cognitive decline already. It is striking. So I worry about the California fires we heard about earlier today. There should be a dementia uptick in response to that. We know there's a dramatic uptick in the World Trade Center of exposures. Another woman we saw recently came from New York. Guess what? She had worked for years in a place that burns paraffin candles 24-7, and her blood had the signature of paraffin candles, toluene, formaldehyde, mercury. These, you, but you do not want to be around paraffin candles 24-7. The interesting thing also is the osteoclastic burst. These people tend to present around the time of menopause, and the suggestion is you're actually sequestering these toxins, and there's a burst of about seven years where you have more osteoclastic activity than osteoblastic activity. So you are literally releasing things like mercury back into your bloodstream around that time, and that's when we see the dementia present. So many toxins. What's interesting is they tend to have a cortical presentation, an atypical presentation for Alzheimer's. It's not the amnestic presentation. It's often executive uh, and uh, dyscalculia, visual, what we call post posterior cortical atrophy is one of them, primary progressive aphasias, things like that. These things are typically parietal syndromes. Why? From these many different toxins. It suggests that this is either a programmatic downsizing or that the toxins are are affecting some similar system, for example, glutathione or something like that. We don't know. So these people tend to come in symptom onset. They're young. We see them late 40s to mid 50s typically. They're often APOE4 negative, not always. They often have depression as an early symptom. They often have problems with math or organization, as I mentioned. They all demonstrate significant exposure to toxins, be they metallotoxins, organic toxins, or biotoxins. We worry about EMFs. There just aren't a lot of data yet. We don't know whether that's going to be a problem or not. Striking precipitation or exacerbation by stress. We had one of them who actually got better, was doing better, and then her son made the Stanford football team, and they live out of state. They would fly each week, and she would be up all night. She absolutely crashed. Had to get back, get rid of the stress, and then she started improving again. They're often called atypical Alzheimer's. So here's an example. Here's a 67-year-old woman, amyloid PET positive. She happened to be APOE4 positive as well. She's still at the MCI stage, fortunately, so her MOCA Montreal Cognitive Assessment Score of 24, onset with depression, classical, non-amnestic presentation, classic, executive dysfunction, paraphasic errors, dyscalculia. Interestingly, no surprise, the amyloid is protecting her, right? So she went in for a drug trial, amyloid removed, what happens to her? She crashes. Each time she would get the injection, 
she would actually do much worse. So after a few injections, she was smart enough to say, that's enough, I'm not doing that anymore. She had a high C4A, TGF beta 1, and she was Marcon's positive, these multiply antibiotic resistant coag negative staph, which is again, it's essentially a marker for biofilms. So very typical story. One year on the protocol, her MOCA went to 30, which is perfect. She's doing great. Actually, I just talked to her yesterday. Um, Mark's subjective improvement. She's a very, very happy woman now. So the bottom line here, just to finish up, Alzheimer's disease should actually be a rare disease. It shouldn't be the third leading cause of death in the United States. It should be rare. If everybody got on appropriate uh, prevention and early reversal, this should be a rare disease. It is a protective response, what we call Alzheimer's, to these different insults, dozens of them. There are these major subtypes, as I mentioned, and combinations, very common of these subtypes. So the bottom line is that, that cognitive decline in early Alzheimer's and its forerunners, in fact, should be reversible and is reversible. We have actually thousands of people who are now in this protocol. Toxins are absolutely critical contributors to Alzheimer's, and they represented initially the group of people that didn't get better when we treated their metabolic changes and their inflammation. But when you, the acid test is when you get rid of the toxins and they get better, that tells you that's a likely contributor. So we should be able to reduce the global burden of dementia markedly and chronic illness, actually, and increase the global cognitive ability, as Mike Mersnick from UCSF points out, if we improve all of our cognition, in fact, we'll have fewer traffic accidents, fewer plane crashes, and so forth and so on. So toxin reduction is critical and personalized. This should be personalized, programmatic approaches, not general, uniform, monotherapeutic approaches. And lastly, what we need to do, in fact, UCSF is the best place to do it. We need to train physicians, and actually Dan Lowenstein, the vice chancellor, well, of course, was known for his tremendous uh, input to education. That's always, I've known Dan since he was a, a young resident. He's always been fantastic with training young doctors. And we need to train a new kind of doctor. If you look, the t- traditional Chinese physicians understood the idea that the body and the mind are all related, but they didn't know about RNAi or metabolomes or things like that. On the other hand, the 20th century doctors knew about DNA and RNA and those sorts of things, but they kept thinking that the brain was separated from the body. So we need to train a new kind of doctor that understands, right? (laughs) That understands that these things go together and that the, the exposome and all these things are all part of good medical care. So thanks very much. I want to actually uh, reiterate something that Dale said. Uh, In 1977, uh, I took my second year pathology course, and of course everybody had to do an autopsy. And my patient was an 83-year-old who had died of this very rare disease that no one had ever heard of, including the neurologists, called Alzheimer's disease. And so I had to do an entire paper on Alzheimer's disease, and it was extraordinarily rare. Now it is the third leading cause of death. That is not genetics. Okay? That's environment. So, again, feeding into this whole issue. So let's... Uh, couple, one question. Laura, you get, <laughs> you get it. And can you explain to us the relationship between our, our, our diet 
and why it is that we that, that is a contributor to Alzheimer's? Fantastic question. And, and that is part of the story, but it's not all of the story. So if you actually look at the molecular drivers of this, at the center you have the amyloid precursor protein, right, which is the parent of the amyloid that you actually produce. So it has, interestingly, a... This is an integrating dependence receptor, which, which means that it is literally sampling everything from your inflammation, if your NF-kappa B is activated, to your exposome, if your glutathione is low, um, what your estradiol is, your pregnenolone, progesterone, free T3, testosterone, vitamin D, all these things are sampled. If you're on the good side of this, you cleave at a single site called the alpha site, you make two peptides, SAPP-alpha and alpha-CTF, that are synaptoblastic. It's like your CEO saying, yeah, we can add another building. If you are not, if you're on the wrong side of this, which includes insulin resistance, insulin is a critical trophic factor for the brain. So when you turn that down, so you can, again, drive yourself into insulin resistance, which, by the way, most of us already have, um, and most of us in this country have this problem already. So this is a major issue. When you do that, now, you're on the other side, you cleave at three sites, and you produce four peptides, SAPP-beta, including A-beta, by the way, uh, C31 and, and a molecule called JCASP. And these are all synaptoclastic. They literally are pulling back on your synapses. So you're going the other direction. Again, it's like your CEO saying, you know, we got a downside. Can't hire anybody new. So you're, you're not able to add more memories, literally. So yes, type 3 diabetes, part of it. Insulin resistance is a huge player. Um, and in fact, Professor Ed Getzel from UCSF showed that 100% of people that he evaluated with exosome analysis, and actually Bruce Miller was on this paper as well, showed that they had central insulin resistance, whether or not they had peripheral insulin resistance. So it's a major player, but it's not the only one by a long stretch. And that insulin resistance for people in the room comes from a poor diet, right? For, it can come from can many come. things, endocrine disruptors. And here's the world expert, but... Yeah, but it's one of the ways to give it to yourself. We're, uh, I now give a talk where I talk about the three phases of metabolic syndrome. One, you get fat. That's rare. Okay, it, the, the fat cells make cytokines. The cytokines make your liver sick. Liver sick makes your pancreas have to make more insulin. We think that's rare. Number two, that, when we call that one the bucket hypothesis, the first one. Second one, the stress hypothesis. Okay, Cushing syndrome actually causes visceral fat accumulation, but actually causes sub-Q fat loss. Depression causes visceral fat accumulation and sub-Q fat loss, and you stop eating, but you get metabolic syndrome. So the visceral fat sends the cytokines to the liver, makes the liver sick, and the whole thing goes over. So the stress hypothesis. And then finally, the mainlining hypothesis. And that's where the bad diet comes in, and particularly sugar, because of all the work that we all know about the sugar, the liver fat, the liver fat, the insulin resistance, et cetera. So there are different ways to get there, likely for Alzheimer's too. Thank you, Dick. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.